Sui Sin Far, 1867 1914. Edith Maud Eaton was a Eurasian born of a Chinese mother and an English father. She looked white but chose to live and write as a Chinese American. She traveled back and forth across the continent, from Seattle to San Francisco to Montreal, searching for a healthier climate. Wherever she lighted, she found the Chinese Americans. Under the name Sui Sin Far, a water lily in Cantonese, Edith Eaton produced a series of stories that give us the only contemporary Chinese American portraits and impressions of Chinese American life in San Francisco, Seattle, New York, and Montreal. The Chinese and China men of her stories, like herself, do not fit the Christian missionary and social Darwinist stereotypes. The intelligent and sexually repugnant sissy Chinese man and the abused, pathologically white male supremacist Chinese woman. Amid the Christian missionary cant and social Darwinist scientific rhetoric, the racist Chinese fiction and the low racist humor that molded the image of the Chinese and China men was one writer writing from reality instead of prejudice, Sui Sin Far. Leaves from the Mental Portfolio of a Eurasian When I look back over the years, I see myself, a little child of scarcely four years of age, walking in front of my nurse in a green English lane and listening to her tell another of her kind that my mother is Chinese. Oh, Lord, exclaimed the informed. She turns me around and scans me curiously from head to foot. Then the two women whisper together. Though the word Chinese conveys very little meaning to my mind, I feel that they are talking about my father and mother, and my heart swells with indignation. When we reach home, I rush to my mother and try to tell her what I have heard. I am a young child. I fail to make myself intelligible. My mother does not understand, and when the nurse declares to her, Little Miss Sui is a storyteller, my mother slaps me. Many a long year has passed over my head since that day, the day on which I first learned that I was something different and apart from other children. But though my mother has forgotten it, I have not. I see myself again, a few years older. I am playing with another child in a garden. A girl passes by outside the gate. Mamie, she cries to my companion. I wouldn't speak to Sui if I were you. Her mama is Chinese. I don't care, answers the little one beside me. And then to me, even if your mama is Chinese, I like you better than I like Annie. But I don't like you, I answer, turning my back on her. It is my first conscious lie. I am at a children's party given by the wife of an Indian officer whose children were schoolfellows of mine. I am only six years of age, but have attended a private school for over a year and have already learned that China is a heathen country, being civilized by England. However, for the time being, I am a merry, romping child. There are quite a number of grown people present. One, a white-haired old man, has his attention called to me by the hostess. 
He adjusts his eyeglasses and surveys me critically. Ah, indeed, he exclaims. Who would have thought it at first glance? Yet now I see the difference between her and other children. What a peculiar coloring. Her mother's eyes and hair and her father's features, I presume. Very interesting little creature. I was called from my play for the purpose of inspection. I do not return to it. For the rest of the evening, I hide myself behind a hall door and refuse to show myself until it is time to go home. My parents have come to America. We are in Hudson City, New York, and we are very poor. I am out with my brother, who is 10 months older than myself. We pass a Chinese store, the door of which is open. Look, says Charlie, those men in there are Chinese. Eagerly, I gaze into the long, low room. With the exception of my mother, who is English-bred with English ways and manner of dress, I have never seen a Chinese person. The two men within the store are uncouth specimens of their race, dressed in working blouses and pantaloons with cues hanging down their backs. I recoil with a sense of shock. Oh, Charlie, I cry, are we like that? Well, we're Chinese, and they're Chinese too, so we must be, returns my seven-year-old brother. Of course you are, puts in a boy who has followed us down the street, and who lives near us and has seen my mother. Chinky, chinky Chinaman, yellow face, pigtail, rat eater. A number of other boys and several little girls join in with him. Better than you, shouts my brother, facing the crowd. He is younger and smaller than any there, and I am even more insignificant than he, but my spirit revives. I'd rather be Chinese than anything else in the world, I scream. They pull my hair, they tear my clothes, they scratch my face, and all but lame my brother. But the white blood in our veins fights valiantly for the Chinese half of us. When it is all over, exhausted and bedraggled, we crawl home and report to our mother that we have won the battle. Are you sure? asks my mother doubtfully. Of course, they ran from us. They were frightened, returns my brother. My mother smiles with satisfaction. Do you hear? she asks my father. Mm, he observes, raising his eyes from his paper for an instant. My childish instinct, however, tells us that he is more interested than he appears to be. It is tea time, but I cannot eat. Unobserved, I crawl away. I do not sleep that night. I am too excited, and I ache all over. Our opponents were so very much stronger and bigger than we. Toward morning, however, I fall into a doze from which I awake myself, shouting, Sound the battle cry, see the foe is nigh. My mother believes in sending us to Sunday school. She has been brought up in a Presbyterian college. The scene of my life shifts to eastern Canada. The sleigh which has carried us from the station stops in front of a little French-Canadian hotel. Immediately, we are surrounded by a number of villagers who stare curiously at my mother as my father assists her to alight from the sleigh. Their curiosity, however, is tempered with kindness as they watch, one after another, the little black heads of my brothers and sisters 
and myself emerge out of the buffalo robe, which is part of the sleigh's outfit. There are six of us, four girls and two boys, the eldest, my brother, being only seven years of age. My father and my mother are still in their twenties. Les pauvres enfants, the inhabitants murmur, as they help to carry us into the hotel. Then, in lower tones, chinoise, chinoise. For some time after our arrival, whenever we children are sent for a walk, our footsteps are dogged by a number of young French and English Canadians who amuse themselves with speculations as to whether we, being Chinese, are susceptible to pinches and hair pulling, while older persons pause and gaze upon us. Very much in the same way that I have seen people gaze upon strange animals in the menagerie. Now and then we are stopped and plied with questions as to what we eat and drink, how we go to sleep, if my mother understands what my father says to her, if we sit on chairs and squat on floors, etc., etc., etc. There are many pinched battles, of course. Pitched battles, of course, and we seldom leave the house without being armed for conflict. My mother takes a great interest in our battles and usually cheers us on, though I doubt whether she understands the depth of the troubled waters through which her little children wade. As to my father, peace is his motto, and he deems it wisest to be blind and deaf to many things. School days are short but memorable. I am in the same class with my brother, my sister next to me in the class below. The little girl whose desk my sister shares shrinks closer against the wall as my sister takes her place. In a little while, she raises her hand. Please, teacher. Yes, Annie. May I change my seat? No, you may not. The little girl sobs. Why should I have to sit beside a... Happily, my sister does not seem to hear, and before long, the two little girls become great friends. I have many such experiences. My brother is remarkably bright. My sister next to me has a wonderful head for figures, and when only eight, of eight years of age, helps my father with his night work accounts. My parents compare her with me. She is of sturdier build than I, and, as my father says, always has her wits about her. She thinks her more like my mother, who is very bright and interested in every little detail of practical life. My father tells me that I will never make half the woman as that my mother is, or that my sister will be. I am not as strong as my sisters, which makes me feel somewhat ashamed, for I am the eldest little girl, and more is expected of me. I have no organic disease, but the strength of my feelings seems to take from me the strength of my body. I'm prostrated at times with attacks of nervous sickness. The doctor says that my heart is unusually large, but in the light of the present, I know that the cross of the Eurasian bore too heavily upon my childish shoulders. I usually hide my weakness from the family until I cannot stand. I do not understand myself, as I have no idea that the others will despise me for not being as strong as they. Therefore, I like to wander away alone, either by the river or in the bush. The green fields and flowing water have a charm for me. At the age of seven, as is today, 
A bird on the wind is my emblem of happiness. I have come from a race on my mother's side, which is said to be the most stolid and insensible to feeling of all races. Yet I look back over the years and see myself so, so keenly alive to every shade of sorrow and suffering that it is almost a pain to live. If there is any trouble in the house in the way of a difference between my father and mother, or if any child is punished, how I suffer. And when harmony is restored, heaven seems to be around me. I can be sad, but I can also be glad. My mother's screams of agony when a baby is born almost drive me wild, and long after her pangs have subsided, I feel them in my own body. Sometimes it is a week before I can get to sleep after such an experience. A debt owing by my father fills me with shame. I feel like a criminal when I pass through the creditor's door. I am only ten years old. And all the while, the question of nationality perplexes my little brain. Why are we what we are? I and my brothers and sisters? Why did God make us to be hooted and stared at? Papa is English, Mama is Chinese. Why couldn't we have been either one thing or the other? Why is my mother's race despised? I look into the faces of my father and mother. Is she not every bit as dear and good as he? Why? Why? She sings us the songs she learned at her English school. She tells us tales of China. Though a child, when she left her native land, she remembers it well, and I am never tired of listening to the story of how she was stolen from her home. She tells us over and over again of her meeting with my father in Shanghai, and the romance of their marriage. Why? Why? I do not confide in my father and mother. They could not understand. How could they? He is English, she is Chinese. I am different to both of them, a stranger, though their own child. What are we? I ask my brother. It doesn't matter, sissy, he responds, but it does. I love poetry, particularly heroic pieces. I also love fairy tales. Stories of everyday life do not appeal to me. I dream dreams of being great and noble. My sisters and brothers also. I glory in the idea of dying at the stake and a great genie arising from the flames and declaring to those who have scorned us, behold, how great and glorious and noble are the Chinese people. My sisters are apprenticed to a dressmaker. My brother is entered in an office. I tramp around and sell my father's pictures, also some lace which I make myself. My nationality, if I had only known it at the time, helps to make sales. The ladies who are my customers call me the little Chinese lace girl. But it is a dangerous life for a very young girl. I come near to mysteriously disappearing many a time. The greatest temptation is in the thought of getting far away from where I am known, to where no mocking cries of Chinese, Chinese can reach. Whenever I have the opportunity, I steal away to the library and read every book I can on China and the Chinese. 
I learned that China is the oldest civilized nation on the face of the earth, and a few other things. At 18 years of age, what troubles me is not that I am what I am, but that others are ignorant of my superiority. I am small, but my feelings are big, and great is my vanity. My sisters attend dancing classes, for which they pay their own fees. In spite of covert smiles and sneers, they are glad to meet and mingle with other young folk. They are not sensitive in the sense that I am, and yet they understand. One of them tells me that she overheard a young man say to another that he would rather marry a pig than a girl with Chinese blood in her veins. In course of time, I too learn shorthand and take a position in an office. Like my sister, I teach myself, but unlike my sister, I have neither the perseverance nor the ability to perfect myself. Besides, to a temperament like mine, it is torture to spend the hours in transcribing other people's thoughts. Therefore, although I can always earn a moderately good salary, I do not distinguish myself in the business world, as does she. When I have been working for some years, I open an office of my own. The local papers patronize me and give me a number of assignments, including most of the local Chinese reporting. I meet many Chinese persons, and when they get into trouble, I'm often called upon to fight their battles in the papers. This I enjoy. My heart leaps for joy when I read one day an article signed by a New York Chinese in which he declares, the Chinese in America owe an everlasting debt of gratitude to Sui Sin Far for the bold stand she has taken in their defense. The Chinaman who wrote the article seeks me out and calls upon me. He is a clever and witty man, a graduate of one of the American colleges, and as well a Chinese scholar. I learned that he has an American wife and several children. I'm very much interested in these children, and when I meet them, my heart throbs in sympathetic tune with the tales they relate of their experiences as Eurasians. Why did Papa and Mama born us? asks one. Why? I also meet other Chinese men who compare favorably with the white men of my acquaintance in mind and heart qualities. Some of them are quite handsome. They have not as finely cut noses and well-developed chins as the white men, but they have smoother skins and their expression is more serene. Their hands are better shaped and their voices softer. Some little Chinese women who I interview are very anxious to know whether I would marry a Chinaman. I do not answer no. They clap their hands delightedly and assure me that the Chinese are much the finest and best of all men. They are, however, a little doubtful as to whether one could be persuaded to care for me, full-blooded Chinese people having a prejudice against the half-white. Fundamentally, I muse. All people are the same. My mother's race is as prejudiced as my father's. Only when the whole world becomes as one family will human beings be able to see clearly and hear distinctly. I believe that someday a great part of the world will be Eurasian. I cheer myself with the thought that I am but a pioneer. A pioneer should glory in suffering. 
You were walking with a Chinaman yesterday, accuses an acquaintance. Yes, what of it? You ought not to. It isn't right. Not right to walk with one of my own mother's people? Oh, indeed. I cannot reconcile his notion of righteousness with my own. I am living in a little town away off on the north shore of a big lake. Next to me at the dinner table is the man for whom I work as a, stenog a stenographer. There are also a couple of businessmen, a young girl and her mother. Someone makes a remark about the cars full of Chinamen that passed that morning. A transcontinental railway runs through the town. My employer shakes his rugged head. Somehow or other, says he, I cannot reconcile myself to the thought that the Chinese are humans like ourselves. They may have immortal souls, but their faces seem to be so utterly devoid of expression that I cannot help but doubt. Souls, echoes the town clerk. Their bodies are enough for me. A Chinaman is, in my eyes, more repulsive than a... They always give me such a creepy feeling, puts in the little the young girl with a laugh. I wouldn't have one in my house, declares my landlady. Now, the Japanese are together, all altogether different. There is something bright and likable about those men, continues Mrs. K. A miserable, cowardly feeling keeps me silent. I'm in a middle west town. If I declare what I am, every person in the place will hear about it the next day. The population is in the main, made up of working folks with strong prejudices against my mother's countrymen. The prospect before me is not an enviable one, if I speak. I have no longer an ambition to die at the stake for the sake of demonstrating the greatness and nobleness of the Chinese people. Mr. K turns to me with a kindly smile. What makes Miss Farr so quiet, he asks. I don't suppose she finds the washy-washy men particularly interesting subjects of conversation, volunteers the young manager of the local bank. With a great effort, I raise my eyes from my plate. Mr. K, I say, addressing my employer, the Chinese people may have no souls, no expression on their faces, be altogether beyond the pale of civilization. But whatever they are, I want you to understand that I am, I am a Chinese. There is silence in the room for a few minutes. Then Mr. K pushes back his plate and standing up beside me says, I should not have spoken as I did. I know nothing whatever about the Chinese. It was pure prejudice. Forgive me. I admire Mr. K's moral courage in apologizing to me. He is a conscientious Christian man, but I do not remain much longer in the little town. I am under a tropic sky, meeting frequently and conversing with persons who are almost as high up in the world as birth, education, and money can set them. The environment is peculiar, and I am also surrounded by a race of people, the reputed descendants of Ham, the son of Noah, whose offspring, it was prophesied, should be the servants of the sons of Shem and Japheth. As I am a descendant, according to the Bible, of both Shem and Japheth, 
I have a perfect right to set my heel upon the ham people, but though I see others around me following out the Bible suggestion, it is not in my nature to be arrogant to any but those who seek to impress me with their superiority, which the poor black maid who has been assigned to me by the hotel certainly does not. My employer's wife takes me to task for this. It is unnecessary, she says, to thank a black person for service. The novelty of life in the West Indian island is not without its charm. The surroundings, people, manner of living are so entirely different from what I have been accustomed to up north that I feel as if I were born again. Mixing with people of fashion, and yet not of them, I am not of sufficient importance to create comment or curiosity. I am busy nearly all day and often well into the night. It is not monotonous work, but it is certainly strenuous. The planters and businessmen of the island take me as a matter of course and treat me with kindly courtesy. Occasionally, an Englishman will warn me against the brown boys of the island, little dreaming that I too am of the brown people of the earth. When it begins to be whispered about the place that I am not all white, some of the sporty people seek my acquaintance. I am small and look much younger than my years. When, however, they discover that I am a very serious and sober-minded spinster indeed, they retire quite gracefully, leaving me a few amusing reflections. One evening, a card is brought to my room. It bears the name of some naval officer. I go down to my visitor, thinking he is probably someone who, having been told that I am a reporter for the local paper, has brought me an item of news. I find him lounging in an easy chair on the veranda of the hotel. A big, blonde, handsome fellow, several years younger than I. Your lieutenant, I inquire. He bows and laughs a little. The laugh doesn't suit him somehow, and it doesn't suit me either. If you have anything to tell me, please tell it quickly, because I'm very busy. Oh, you don't really mean that, he answers, with another silly and offensive laugh. There's always plenty of time for good times. That's what I am here for. I saw you at the races the other day, and twice at King's house. My ship will be here for weeks. Do you wish that noted? I ask. Oh no. Why, I came here just because I had an idea that you might like to know me. I would like to know you. You look like such a nice little body. Say, wouldn't you like to go out for a sail this lovely night? I will tell you all about the sweet little Chinese girls I met when we were at Hong Kong. They're not so shy. I leave eastern Canada for the far west, so reduced by another attack of rheumatic fever, rheumatic fever that I only weigh 84 pounds. I travel on an advertising contract. It is presumed by the railway company that in some way or other, I will give them full value for their transportation across the continent. I've been ordered beyond the Rockies by the doctor who declares that I will never regain my strength in the East. 
Nevertheless, I am but two days in San Francisco when I start out in search of work. It is the first time that I have sought work as a stranger in a strange town. Both of the other positions away from home were secured for me by home influence. I'm quite surprised to find that there is no demand for my services in San Francisco and that no one is particularly interested in me. The best I can do is to accept an offer from a railway agency to typewrite their correspondence for $5 a month. I stipulate, however, that I shall have the privilege of taking in outside work and that my hours shall be light. I am hopeful that the sale of a story or newspaper article may add to my income, and I console myself with the reflection that, considering that I am limp and bear traces of sickness, I am fortunate to secure any work at all. The proprietor of one of the San Francisco papers, to whom I have a letter of introduction, suggests that I obtain some subscriptions from the people of Chinatown, that district of the city having never ha been canvassed. This suggestion I carry out with enthusiasm, though I find that the Chinese merchants and people generally are inclined to regard me with suspicion. They have been imposed upon so many times by unscrupulous white people. Another drawback, save for a few phrases, I am unacquainted with my mother tongue. How then can I expect these people to accept me as their own countrywoman? The Americanized Chinamen actually laugh in my face when I tell them that I am of their race. However, they are not all doubting Thomases. Some little women discover that I have Chinese hair, color of eyes and complexion, also that I love rice and tea. This settles the matter for them and for their husbands. My Chinese instincts develop. I am no longer the little girl who shrunk against my brother at the first sight of a Chinaman. Many and many a time, when alone in a strange place, has the appearance of even a humble laundryman given me a sense of protection and made me feel quite at home. This fact of itself proves to me that prejudice can be eradicated by association. I meet a half-Chinese, half-white girl. Her face is plastered with a thick, white coat of paint, and her eyelids and eyebrows are blackened, so that the shape of her eyes and the whole expression of her face is changed. She was born in the East, and at the age of 18 came West in answer to an advertisement. Living for many years among the working class, she had heard little but abuse of the Chinese. It is not difficult in a land like California for a half-Chinese, half-white girl to pass as one of Spanish or Mexican origin. This the poor child does, though she lives in nervous dread of being discovered. She becomes engaged to a young man, but fears to tell him what she is, and only does so when compelled by a fearless American girlfriend. This girl, who knows her origin, realizing that the truth sooner or later must be told, and better soon than late, advises the Eurasian to confide in the young man, assuring her that he loves her well enough 
not to allow her nationality to stand, a bar sinister between them. But the Eurasian prefers to keep her secret, and only reveals it to the man who is to be her husband, when driven to bay by the American girl, who declares that if the half breed will not tell the truth, she will. When the young man hears that the girl she is he is engaged to has Chinese blood in her veins, he exclaims, "Oh, what will my folks say?" But that is all. Love is stronger than prejudice with him, and neither he nor she deems it necessary to inform his folks. Since the Americans have, for many years, manifested a much higher regard for the Japanese than for the Chinese, several half Chinese young men and women, thinking to advance themselves, both in a social and business sense, pass as Japanese. They continue to be known as Eurasians. But a Japanese Eurasian does not appear in the same light as a Chinese Eurasian. The unfortunate Chinese Eurasians are not those who compel them to thus cringe. More, are the, not those who compel them to thus cringe more to be blamed than they. People, however, are not all alike. I meet white men and women too, who are proud to mate with those who have Chinese blood in their veins, and think it a great honor to be distinguished by the friendship of such. There are also Eurasians and Eurasians. I know of one who allowed herself to become engaged to a white man, after refusing him nine times. She had discouraged him in every way possible and warned him. That she was half Chinese, that her people were poor, that every week or month she sent home a certain amount of her earnings, and that the man she married would have to do as much, if not more. Also, most uncompromising truth of all, that she did not love him and never would. But the resolute and undaunted lover swore that it was a matter of indifference to him whether she was a Chinese or a Hottentot. That it would be his pleasure and privilege to allow her relations double, what it was in her power to bestow, and as to not loving him, that did not matter at all. He loved her. So, because the young woman had a married mother and married sisters, who were always picking at her and gossiping over her independent manner of living, she finally consented to marry him, recording the agreement in her diary thus. I've promised to become the wife of so and so on so and so, eighteen ninety, because the world is so cruel and sneering to a single woman, and for no other reason. Everything went smoothly until one day. The young man was driving a pair of beautiful horses, and she was seated by his side, trying very hard to imagine herself in love with him. When a Chinese vegetable gardener's cart came rumbling along. The Chinaman was a jolly-looking individual in a blue cotton blouse and pantaloons, his rakish-looking hat being kept in place by a long queue, which was pulled upward from his neck and wound around it. The young woman was suddenly possessed with a spirit of mischief. Look, she cried, indicating the Chinaman. There is my brother. Why don't you salute him? The man's face fell a little. He sank into a pensive mood, 
The wicked one by his side read him like an open book. When we are married, said she, I intend to give a Chinese party every month. No answer. As there are very few aristocratic Chinese in this city, I shall fill up with the laundrymen and vegetable farmers. I don't believe in being exclusive in democratic America, do you? He hadn't a grain of humor in his composition, but a sickly smile contorted his features as he replied, You shall do just as you please, my darling, but, but, consider a moment. Wouldn't it be just a little pleasanter for us if, after we were married, we allowed it to be presumed that you were, um, Japanese? So many of my friends have inquired of me if that is not your nationality. They would be so charmed to meet a little Japanese lady. Hadn't you better oblige them by finding one? Why, what do you mean? Nothing much in particular. Only I am getting a little tired of this, taking off his ring. You don't mean what you say. Oh, put it back, dearest. You know I would not hurt your feelings for the world. You haven't. I'm more than pleased. But I do mean what I say. That evening, the ungrateful Chinese Eurasian diaried, among other things, the following. Joy, oh joy, I'm free once more. Never again shall I be untrue to my own heart. Never again will I allow anyone to hound or sneer me into matrimony. I secure transportation to many California points. I meet some literary people, chief among them, who is the editor of the magazine that took my first Chinese stories. He and his wife give me a warm welcome to their ranch. They're a broad-minded people whose interest in me is sincere and intelligent, not affected and vulgar. I also meet some funny people who advise me to trade upon my nationality. They tell me that if I wish to succeed in literature in America, I should dress in Chinese costume, carry a fan in my hand, wear a pair of scarlet beaded slippers, live in New York, and come of high birth. Instead of making myself familiar with the Chinese Americans around me, I should discourse on my spirit acquaintance with Chinese ancestors and quote in between the good mornings and how you do's of editors. Confucius, Confucius, how great is Confucius. Before Confucius, there never was Confucius. After Confucius, there never came Confucius, etc. Or something like that. Both illuminating and obscuring, don't you know? They forget, or perhaps they are not aware, that the old Chinese sage taught the way of sincerity is the way of heaven my experiences as an eurasian never cease but people are not now as prejudiced as they have been in the west too my friends are more advanced in all lines of thought than those whom i know in eastern canada more genuine more sincere with less of the form of religion but more of its spirit so I roam backward and forward across the continent. When I am east, my heart is west. When I am west, my heart is east. Before long, I hope to be in China. 
As my life began in my father's country, it may end in my mother's. After all, I have no nationality and I'm not anxious to claim any. Individuality is more than nationality. You are you and I am I, says Confucius. I give my right hand to the Occidentals and my left to the Orientals, hoping that between them they will not utterly destroy the insignificant connecting link. The story of one white woman who married a Chinese. Why did I marry Liu Kangi, a Chinese? Well, in the first place, because I loved him. In the second place, because I was weary of working, struggling, and fighting with the world. In the third place, because my child needed a home. My first husband was an American 15 years older than myself. For a few months, I was very happy with him. I had been a working girl, a stenographer. A home of my own filled my heart with joy. It was a pleasure to me to wait upon James, cook him nice little dinners and suppers, read to him little pieces from the papers and magazines, and sing and play to him my little songs and melodies. And for a few months, he seemed to be perfectly contented. I suppose I was a novelty to him, he having lived a bachelor existence until he was 34, but it was not long before he left off smiling at my little jokes, grew restive and cross when I teased him, and when I tried to get him to listen to a story in which I was interested and longed to communicate, he would bid me not bother him. I was quick to see the change and realized that there was a gulf of differences between us. Nevertheless, I loved and was proud of him. He was considered a very bright and well-informed man, and although his parents had been uneducated working people, he had himself been through the public schools. He was also an omnivorous reader of socialistic and new thought literature. Women's suffrage was one of his particular hobbies. Whenever I had a magazine around, he would pick it up and read aloud to me, the columns of advice to women who were ambitious to become comrades to men and walk shoulder to shoulder with their brothers. Once I ventured to remark that much much as I admired a column of men keeping step together, yet men and women thus ranked would, to my mind, make a very unbeautiful and disorderly spectacle. He frowned and answered that I did not understand him and was too frivolous. He would often draw my attention to newspaper reports concerning women of marked business ability and enterprise. Once I told him that I did not admire clever businesswomen as I had usually found them and had other girls of my acquaintance, not nearly so kind-hearted generous and helpful as the humble drudges of the world, the ordinary working women. His answer, his answer to this was that I was jealous and childish. But in spite of his unkind remarks and evident contempt for me, I wished to please him. He was my husband and I loved him. Many an afternoon, when through with my domestic duties, did I spend in trying to acquire a knowledge of labor politics, socialism, 
women's suffrage, and baseball, the things in which he was most interested. It was hard work, but I persevered until one day. It was about six months after our marriage. My husband came home a little earlier than usual and found me engaged in trying to work out problems in subtraction and addition. He laughed sneeringly. Give it up, Minnie, said he. You weren't built for anything but taking care of kids. Gee, but there's a woman at our place who has a head for figures that makes her worth over a hundred dollars a month. Her husband would have a chance to develop himself. This speech wounded me. I knew it was James's ambition to write a book on social reform. The next day, unknown to my husband, I called upon the wife of the man who had employed me as, as a stenographer before I was married and inquired of her whether she thought I could get back my old position. But, my dear, she exclaimed, your husband is receiving a good salary. Why should you work? I told her that my husband had in mind the writing of a book on social reform, and I wished to help him in his ambition by earning some money towards its publication. Social reform, she echoed. What sort of social reformer is he who would allow his work wife to work when he is well able to support her? She bade me go home and think no more of an office position. I was disappointed. I said, Oh, I wish I could earn some money for James. If I were earning money, may perhaps he would not think me so stupid. Stupid, my dear girl, you are one of the brightest little women I know, kindly comforted Mrs. Rogers. But I knew differently and went on to tell her of my inability to figure with my husband, how much he had made on certain sales and my lack of interest in politics, labor questions, women's suffrage, and world reformation. Oh, I cried, I am a narrow-minded woman. All I care for is for my husband to love me and be kind to me, for life to be pleasant and easy, and to be able to help a wee bit the poor and sick around me. Mrs. Rogers looked very serious as she told me that there were differences of opinion as to what was meant by narrow-mindedness, and that the majority of men had no wish to drag their wives into all their business perplexities, and found more comfort in a woman who was unlike rather than like themselves. Only that morning, her husband had said to her, I hate a woman who tries to get into every kink of a man's mind, and who must be forever at his elbow, meddling with all his affairs. I went home comforted. Perhaps after a while, James would feel and see, as did Mr. Rogers, vain hope. My child was six weeks old when I entered business life again as stenographer for Rutherford and Rutherford. My salary was $50 a month, more than I had ever earned before, and James was well pleased, for he had feared that it would be difficult for me to obtain a paying place after having been out of practice for so long. This $50 paid for all our living expenses with the exception of rent, so that James would be able to put by his balance 
against the time when his book would be ready for publication. He began writing his book, and Ms. Moran, the young woman bookkeeper at his place, collaborated with him. They gave three evenings a week to the work, sometimes four. She came one evening when the baby was sick and James had gone for the doctor. She looked at the child with the curious eyes of one who neither loved nor understood children. There is no necessity for its being sick, said she. There must be an error somewhere. I made no answer, so she went on. Sin, sorrow, and sickness all mean the same thing. We have no disease that we do not deserve, no trouble which we do not bring upon ourselves. I did not argue with her. I knew that I could not. But as I looked at her standing there in the prime of her life and strength, broad-shouldered, masculine-featured, and, as it seemed to me, heartless, I disliked her more than I had ever disliked anyone before. My own father had died after suffering for many years from a terrible malady contracted while doing his duty as a physician and surgeon, and my innocent child, what had sin to do with its measles? When James came in, she discussed with him the baseball game, which had been played that afternoon, and also a women's suffrage meeting, which she had attended the evening before. After she had gone, he seemed to be quite exhilarated. That's a great woman, he remarked. I do not think so, I answered him. One who would take from the sorrowful and suffering their hope of a happier existence hereafter and add to their trials on earth by branding them as objects of aversion and contempt is not only not a great woman, but, to my mind, no woman at all. He picked up paper and walked into another room. What do you think now? I cried after him. What would be the use of my explaining to you? He returned. You wouldn't understand. How my heart yearned over my child those days. I would sit before the typewriter and, in fancy, hear her crying for her mother. Poor, sick little one, watched over by a strange woman, deprived of her proper nourishment. While I took dictation from my employer, I thought only of her. The result, of course, was that I lost my place. My husband showed his displeasure at this in various ways, and as the weeks went by and I was unsuccessful in obtaining another position, he became colder and more indifferent. He was neither a drinking nor an abusive man, but he could say such cruel and cutting things that I would a hundred times rather have been beaten and ill-used than compelled as I was to hear them. He even made me feel it a disgrace to be a woman and a mother. Once he said to me, If you had had ambition of the right sort, you would have perfected yourself in your stenography so that you could have taken cases in court. There's a little fortune in that business. I was acquainted with a woman stenographer who reported divorce cases and who had described to me the work, so I answered, I would rather die of hunger, my baby in my arms, than report divorce proceedings 
under the eyes of men in a courthouse. Other women as good as you have done and are doing it, he retorted. Other women, perhaps better than I, have done and are doing it, I replied. But all women are not alike. I am not that kind. That's so, said he. Well, they're the kind who are up to date. You are behind the times. One evening, I left James and Miss Moran engaged with their work and went across the street to see a sick friend. When I returned, I let myself into the house very softly for fear of awakening the baby, whom I had loved sleeping. As I stood in the hall, I heard my husband's voice in the sitting room. This is what he was saying. I am a lonely man. There is no companionship between me and my wife. Nonsense, answered Miss Moran, as I thought a little impatiently. Look over this paragraph, please, and tell me if you do not think it would be well to have it follow after the one ending with the words ultimate concord, in place of that beginning with these great principles. I cannot settle my mind upon the work tonight, said James in a sort of thick, tired voice. I want to talk to you, to win your sympathy, your love. I heard a chair pushed back. I knew Miss Moran had arisen. Good night, I heard her say. Much as I would like to see this work accomplished, I shall come no more. But my God, you cannot throw the thing up at this late date. I can and I will. Let me pass, sir. If there were no millstone around my neck, you would not say, let me pass, sir, in that tone of voice. The next I heard was a heavy fall. Miss Moran had knocked my big husband down. I pushed open the door. Miss Moran, cool and collected, was pulling on her gloves. James was struggling to his feet. Oh, Mrs. Carson, exclaimed the former. Your husband fell over the stool. Wasn't that stupid of him? James, of course, got his divorce six months after I deserted him. He did not ask for the child, and I was allowed to keep it. Two. I was on my way to the waterfront, the baby in my arms. I was walking quickly, for my state of mind was such that I could have borne twice my burden and not have felt it. Just as I turned down a hill which led to the docks, someone touched my arm, and I heard a voice say, Pardon me, lady, but you have dropped your baby's shoe. Oh yes, I answered. Taking the shoe mechanically from an outstretched hand and pushing on, I could hear the waves lapping against the pier when the voice again fell upon my ear. If you go any further, lady, you will fall into the water. My answer was a step forward. A strong hand was laid upon my arm and I was swung around against my will. Poor little baby, went on the voice, which was unusually soft for a man's. Let me hold him. 
I surrendered my child to the voice. Better come over where it is light and you can see where to walk. I allowed myself to be led into the light. Thus I met Liu Kangyi, the Chinese who afterwards became my husband. I followed him, obeyed him, trusted him from the very first. It never occurred to me to ask myself what manner of man was succoring me. I only knew that he was a man, and that I was being cared for as no one had ever cared for me since my father died. And my grim determination to leave a world which had been cruel to me passed away, and in its place I experienced a strange calmness and content. I am going to take you to the house of a friend of mine, he said, as he preceded me up the hill, the baby in his arms. You will not mind living with Chinese people, he added. An electric light under which we were passing flashed across his face. I did not recoil, not even at first. It may have been because he was wearing American clothes, wore his hair cut, and, even to my American eyes, appeared a good-looking young man. And it may have been because of my troubles, but whatever it was, I answered him and I meant it. I would much rather live with Chinese than Americans. He did not ask me why, and I did not tell him until long afterwards the story of my unhappy marriage. My desertion of the man who had made it impossible for me to remain under his roof. The shame of the divorce. The averted faces of those who had been my friends. The cruelty of the world. The awful struggle for an existence for myself and child. Sickness followed by despair. The Chinese family with which he placed me were kind, simple folk. The father had been living in America for more than 20 years. The family consisted of his wife, a grown daughter, and several small sons and daughters, all of whom had been born in America. They made me feel very welcome and adored the baby. Liu Ju Song, the father, was a working jeweler, but because of an accident by which he had lost the use of one hand, he was partially incapacitated for work. Therefore, their family depended for maintenance chiefly upon their kinsman, Liu Kangyi, the Chinese who had brought me to them. We love much her cousin, said one of the little girls to me one day. He teaches us so many games and brings us toys and sweets. As soon as I recovered from the attack of nervous prostration, which laid me low for over a month after being received into the Liu home, my mind began to form plans for my own and my child's maintenance. One morning, I put on my hat and jacket and told Mrs. Liu I would go downtown and make an application for work as a stenographer at the different typewriting offices. She pleaded with me to wait a week longer until, as she said, your limbs are more fortified with strength. But I assured her that I felt myself 
well able to begin to do for myself, and that I was anxious to repay some little part of the expense I had been to them. For all we have done for you, she answered, our cousin has paid us double fold. No money can recompense your kindness to myself and child, I replied. But if it is your cousin to whom I am indebted for board and lodging, all the greater is my anxiety to repay what I owe. When I returned to the house that evening, tired out with my little quest for work, or for my quest for work, I found Lee Kangi tossing a ball with little Fong on the front porch. Mrs. Liu bustled out to meet me and began scolding me in motherly fashion. Oh, why you go downtown before you strong enough? See, you look all sick again, said she. She turned to Liu Kangi and said something in Chinese. He threw the ball back to the boy and came towards me, his face grave and concerned. Be so good as to take my cousin's advice, he urged. I'm well enough to work now, I replied, and I cannot sink deeper into your debt. You need not, said he. I know a way by which you can quickly pay me off and earn a good living without wearing yourself out and leaving the baby all day. My cousin tells me that you can create most beautiful flowers on silk, velvet, and linen. Why not then you do some of that work for my store? I will buy all you can make. Oh, I exclaimed, I should be only too glad to do such work. But do you think I can earn a living in that way? You certainly can, was his reply. I'm requiring an embroiderer, and if you will do the work for me, I will try to pay you what it is worth. So I gladly gave up my quest for office work. I lived in the Liu Jusong house and worked for Liu Kangi. The days, weeks, and months passed peacefully and happily. Artistic needlework had always been my favorite occupation, and when it became a source both of remuneration and pleasure, I began to feel that life was worth living. After all, I watched with complacency my child grow amongst the little Chinese children. My life's experience had taught me that the virtues do not all belong to the whites. I was interested in all that concerned the Liu household became acquainted with all their friends, and lost altogether the prejudice against the foreigner in which I had been reared. I had been living thus more than a year when, one afternoon as I was walking home from Liu Kangi's store on Kearney Street, a parcel of silks and floss under my arm, and my little girl trudging by my side, I came face to face with James Carson. Well now, said he, planting himself in front of me, you are looking pretty well. How are you making out? I caught up my child and pushed past him without a word. When I reached the Lou house, I was trembling in every limb. So great was my dislike and fear of the man who had been my husband. About a week later, 
A letter came to the house addressed to me. It read, Dear Minnie, if you are willing to forget the past and make up, I am too. I was surprised to see you the other day, prettier than ever, and much more of a woman. Let me know your mind at an early date. Your affectionate husband, James. I ignored this letter, but a heavy fear oppressed me. Liu Kangi, who called the evening of the day I received it, remarked as he arose to greet me that I was looking troubled and hoped that it was not the embroidery flowers. It is the shadow from my big hat, I answered lightly. I was dressed for going downtown with Mrs. Liu, who was preparing her eldest daughter's trousseau. Some day, said Liu Kangi earnestly, I hope that you will tell to me all that is in your heart and mind. I found comfort in his kind face. If you will wait until I return, I will tell you all tonight, I answered. Strange as it may seem, although I had known Liu Kangi now for more than a year, I had had little talk alone with him, and all he knew about me was what he had learned from Mrs. Liu, namely, that I was a divorced woman who, when saved from self-destruction, was homeless and starving. That night, however, after hearing my story, he asked me to be his wife. He said, I love you and would protect you from all trouble. Your child shall be as my own. I replied, I appreciate your love and kindness, but I cannot answer you just yet. Be my friend for a little while longer. Do you have for me the love feeling, he asked. I do not know, I answered truthfully. Another letter came. It was written in a different spirit from the first, and contained a threat about the child. There seemed but one course open to me. That was to leave my Chinese friends. I did. With much sorrow and regret, I bade them goodbye, and took lodgings in a part of the city far removed from the outskirts of Chinatown, where my home had been with the Lu's. My little girl pined for her Chinese playmates, and I myself felt strange and lonely, but I knew that if I wished to keep my child, I could no longer remain with my friends. I, was I still continued working for Liu Kangyi, and carried my embroidery to a store in the evening after the little one had been put to sleep. He usually escorted me back, but never asked to be allowed, and I never invited him to visit me or even enter the house. I was a young woman and alone, and what I had suffered from scandal since I had left James Carson had made me wise. It was a cold, wet evening in November when he accosted me once again. I'd run over to a delicatessen store at the corner of the block where I lived. As I stepped out, his burly figure loomed up in the gloom before me. I started back with a little cry, but he grasped my arm and held it. Walk beside me quietly if you do not wish to attract attention, said he, and by God, if you do, I will take the kid tonight. You dare not, I answered. You have no right to her, whatever. She is my child, and I have supported her for the last two years alone.
alone. What will the judges say when I tell them about the Chinaman? What will the judges say? I echoed. What can they say? Is there any disgrace in working for a Chinese merchant and receiving pay for my labor? And walking in the evening with him and living for over a year in a house for which he paid the rent. Ha ha ha. His laugh was low and sneering. He had evidently been making inquiries concerning the Liu family, and also watching me for some time. How a woman can loathe and hate the man she has once loved. We were nearing my lodgings. Perhaps the child had awakened and was crying for me. I would not, however, have entered the house. Had he not stopped at the door and pushed it open, lead the way upstairs," said he. "I want to see the kid. You shall not," I cried. In my desperation, I wrenched myself from his grasp and faced him, blocking the stairs. If you use violence, I declared, the lodgers will come to my assistance. They know me. He released my arm. Bah," said he. I've no use for the kid. It is you I'm after, getting reconciled to. Don't you know, Minnie, that once your husband, always your husband. Since I saw you the other day on the street, I have been more in love with you than ever before. Suppose we forget all and begin over again. Though the tone of his voice had softened, my fear of him grew greater. I would have fled up the stairs had he not again laid his hand on my arm. Answer me, girl," he said. And in spite of my fear, I shook off his hand and answered him, "No husband of mine are you, either legally or morally, and I have no feeling whatever for you other than contempt." Ah, so you have sunk. His expression was evil. The oily little chink has won you. I was no longer afraid of him. Won me! I cried, unheeding who he heard me. Yes, honorably and like a man. And what are you that dare sneer at one like him? For all your six feet of grossness, your small soul cannot measure up to his great one. You were unwilling to protect and care for the woman, who was your wife. Or the little child you caused to come into this world, but he, but he succored and saved the stranger woman, treated her as a woman with reverence and respect, gave her child a home, and made them both independent, not only of others but of himself. Now, hearing you insult him behind his back, I know what I did not know before—that I love him, and all I have to say to you is, go. And James Carson went. I heard of him again, but once. That was when the papers reported his death of apoplexy while exercising at a public gymnasium. Loving Liu Kangi, I became his wife. And though it is true that there are many Americans who look down upon me for so becoming, I have never regretted it. No, not even when men cast upon me 
the glances they cast upon sporting women. I accept the lot of the American wife of a humble Chinaman in America. The happiness of the man who loves me is more to me than the approval or disapproval of those who in my dark days left me to die like a dog. My Chinese husband has his faults. He is hot-tempered and, at times, arbitrary. But he is always a man and has never sought to take away from me the privilege of being but a woman. I can lean upon him and trust in him. I feel him behind me, protecting and caring for me, and that, to an ordinary woman like myself, means more than anything else. Only when the son of the Yukangi lays his little head upon my bosom do I question whether I have done wisely. For my boy, the son of a Chinese man, is possessed of a childish wisdom which brings the tears to my eyes. And as he stands between his father and myself, and yet unlike us both, so will he stand in after years between his father's and his mother's people. And if there is no kindliness nor understanding between them, what will my boy's fate be? Her Chinese Husband Sequel to the story of one white woman who married a Chinese. Now that Liu Kangi is no longer with me, I feel that I will ease my heart to record some memories of him, if I can. The task, though calling to me, is not an easy one. So throng to my mind the invincible proofs of his love for me, the things he has said and done. My memories of him are so vivid and pertinacious, my thoughts of him so tender. To my Chinese husband, I could go with all my little troubles and perplexities. To him, I could talk as women love to do at times of the past and the future, the mysteries of religion, of life and death. He was not above discussing such things with me. With him, I was never strange or embarrassed. My Chinese husband was simple in his tastes. He liked to hear a good story, and though unlearned in a sense, could discriminate between the good and bad in literature. This came of his Chinese education. He told me one day that he thought the stories in the Bible were more like Chinese than American stories, and added, If you had not told me what you have about it, I should say that it was composed by the Chinese. Music had a soothing, though not a deep, influence over him. It could not sway his mind, but he enjoyed it just as he did a beautiful picture. Because I was interested in fancy work, so also was he. I can see his face, looking so grave and concerned, because one day by accident I spilt some ink on a piece of embroidery I was working. If he came home in the evenings and found me tired and out of sorts, he would cook the dinner himself and go about it in such a way that I felt he rather enjoyed showing off his skill as a cook. The next evening, if he found everything ready, he would humorously declare himself much disappointed that I was exceedingly well. At such times, a gray memory of James Carson would arise.
how his cold anger and contempt, as exhibited on like occasions, had shriveled me up in the long ago. And then I would fall to musing on the difference between the two men as lovers and husbands. James Carson had been much more of an ardent lover than ever had been Liu Kangi. Indeed, it was his passion, real or feigned, which had carried me off my feet. When wooing, he had constantly reproached me with being cold, unfeeling, a marble statue, and so forth. And I, poor ignorant little girl, I would wonder how it was I appeared so when I felt so differently. For I had given James Carson my first love. Upon him my life had been concentrated as it had never been concentrated upon any other. Yet, there was nothing feigned about my Chinese husband. Simple and sincere as he was before marriage, so was he afterwards. As my union with James Carson had meant misery, bitterness, and narrowness, so my union with Liu Kangi meant, on the whole, happiness, health, and development. Yet the former, according to American ideas, had been an educated, broad-minded man, the other just an ordinary Chinaman. But the ordinary Chinaman that I would show to you was the sort of man that children, birds, animals, and some women love. Every morning he would go to the morning or he would go to the window and call to his pigeons, and they would flock around him, hearing and responding to his whispering and cooing. The rooms we lived in had been his rooms ever since he had come to America. They were above his store and large and cool. The furniture had been brought from China, but there was nothing of tinsel about it. Dark wood, almost black, carved and antique, some of the pieces set with mother-of-pearl. On one side of the inner room stood a case of books and an ancestral tablet. I have seen Liu Kangi touch the tablet with reverence, but the faith of his father's was not strong enough to cause him to bow before it. The elegant simplicity of these rooms had surprised me much when I was first taken to them. I looked at him then, standing for a moment by the window, a solitary pigeon peeking in at him, perhaps wondering who had come to divert from her friend's attention. So had he lived since he had come to this country, quietly and undis undisturbed, from twenty years of age to twenty-five. I felt myself an intruder, a feeling of pity for the boy, for such he seemed in his enthusiasm, arose in my breast. Why had I come to confuse his calm? Was it ordained, as he declared? My little girl loved him better than she loved me. He took great pleasure in playing with her, curling her hair over his fingers, tying her sash, and all the simple tasks from which so many men turn aside. Once the baby got hold of a set rat trap and was holding it in such a way that the slightest move would have released the spring and plunged the cruel steel into her tender arms. 
Kongi's eyes and mine beheld her thus at the same moment. I stood transfixed with horror. Kongi quietly went up to the child and took from her the trap. Then he asked me to release his hand. I almost fainted when I saw it. It was the only way, said he. We had to send for the doctor and, even as it was, came very near having a case of blood poisoning. I have heard people say that he was a keen businessman, this Liu Kangyi, and I imagine that he was. I did not, however, discuss his business with him. All I was interested in were the pretty things and the women who would come in and jest with him. He could jest, too. Of course, the women did not know that I was his wife. Once, a woman in rich clothes gave him her card and asked him to call upon her. After she had left, he passed the card to me. I tore it up. He took those things as a matter of course and was not affected by them. They are a part of Chinatown life, he explained. He was a member of the Reform Club, a Chinese social club, and the Chinese Board of Trade. He liked to discuss business affairs and Chinese and American politics with his countrymen, and occasionally enjoyed an evening away from me. But I never needed to worry over him. He had this, his littlenesses as well as his bignesses, had Liu Kangyi. For instance, he thought he knew better about what was good for my health and other things purely personal than I did myself, and if my ideas opposed or did not tally with his, he would very vigorously denounce what he called the foolishness of women. If he admired a certain dress, he would have me he would have me wear it on every occasion possible, and did not seem to be able to understand that it was not always suitable. Wear the dress with the silver lines, he said to me one day, somewhat authoritatively. I was attired for going out, but not as he wished to see me. I answered that the dress with the silver lines was unsuitable for a long and dusty ride on an open car. Never mind, said he. Whether it is unsuitable or not, I wish you to wear it. All right, I said, I will wear it, but I will stay at home. I stayed at home, and so did he. At another time, he reproved me for certain opinions I had expressed in the presence of some of his countrymen. You should not talk like that, said he. They will think you are a bad woman. My white blood rose at that, and I answered him in a way which grieves me to remember. For Kangi had never meant to insult or hurt me. Imperious by nature, he often spoke before he thought, and he was so boyishly anxious for me to appear in the best light possible before his own people. There were other things too, a sort of childish jealousy and suspicion, which it was difficult to allay. But a woman can forgive much to a man, the sincerity and strength of those whose love makes her own though true, seems slight and mean. Yes, 
Life with Liu Kangyi was not without its trials and tribulations. There was the continual uncertainty about his own life here in America, the constant irritation caused by the assumption of the white men that a white woman does not love her Chinese husband, and their actions accordingly, also sneers and offensive remarks. There was also on Liu Kangyi's side an acute consciousness that, though belonging to him as his wife, yet in a sense I was not his, but of the dominant race which claimed, even while it professed to despise me. This consciousness betrayed itself in words and ways which filled me with a passion of pain and humiliation. Kangi, I would sharply say, for I had to cloak my tenderness. Do not talk to me like that. You are my superior. I would not love you if you were not. But in spite of all I could do or say, it was there between us. That strange, invisible, what? Was it the barrier of race, that consciousness? Sometimes he would talk about returning to China. The thought filled me with horror. I had heard rumors of secondary wives. One afternoon, the cousin of Liu Kangyi, with whom I had lived, came to see me and showed me a letter which she had received from a little Chinese girl who had been born and brought up in America until the age of 10. The last paragraph in the letter read, Emma and I are very sad and wish we were back in America. Kangyi's cousin explained, that the father of the little girls, having no sons, had taken himself another wife, and the new wife lived with the little girls and their mother. That was before my little boy was born. That evening, I told Kangi that he need never expect me to go to China with him. You see, I began, I look upon you as belonging to me. He would not let me say more. After a while, he said, it is true that in China a man may and occasionally does take a secondary wife, but that custom is custom, not only because sons are denied to the first wife, but because the first wife is selected by parents and guardians before a man is hardly a man. If a Chinese marries for love, his life is a filled up cup, and he wants no secondary wife. No, not even for the sake of a son. Take, for example, me, your great husband. I sometimes commented upon his boyish ways and appearance, which was the reason why, when he was in high spirits, he would call himself my great husband. He was not boyish always. I have seen him, when shouldering the troubles of kinfolk, the quarrels of his clan, and other responsibilities, acting and looking like a man of twice his years. But for all the strange marriage customs of my husband's people, I considered them far more moral in their lives than the majority of Americans. I expressed myself thus to Liu Kangyi, and he replied, The American people think higher. If only more of them lived up to what they thought, Chinese would not be so confused in trying to follow their leadership. If ever a man rejoiced over the birth of his child, 
It was Liu Kangyi. The boy was born with a veil over his face. A prophet, cried the old mulatto Jewess who nursed me. A prophet has come into the world. She told this to her, his father when, she came, when he came to look upon him, and he replied, He is my son, that is all I care about. But he was so glad, and there was feasting and rejoicing with his Chinese friends for over two weeks. He came in one evening and found me weeping over my poor little boy. I shall never forget the expression on his face. Oh, shame, he murmured, drawing my head down to his shoulder. What is there to weep about? The child is beautiful. The feeling heart, the understanding mind is his. We will bring him up to be proud that he is of Chinese blood. He will fear none and, after him, the name of half-breed will no longer be one of contempt. Kang Yi, as a youth, had attended a school in Hong Kong, and while there, while there had made the acquaintance of several half-Chinese, half-English lads. They were the brightest of all, he told me, but they lowered themselves in the eyes of the Chinese by being ashamed of their Chinese blood and ignoring it. His theory, therefore, was that if his own son was brought up to be proud instead of ashamed of his Chinese half, the boy would become a great man. Perhaps he was right, but he could not see as could I, an American woman, the conflict between, before our boy. After the little Kangi had passed his first month and we had found a reliable woman to look after him, his father began to take me around with him much more than formerly, and life became a very life became very enjoyable. We dined often at a Chinese restaurant, kept by a friend of his, and afterwards attended theaters, concerts, and other places of entertainment. We frequently met Americans with whom he had become acquainted through a business and he would introduce them with great pride in me shining in his eyes. The little jealousies and suspicions of the first year seemed no longer to irritate him, and though I had still caused to shrink from the gaze of strangers, I know that my Chinese husband was for several years a very happy man. Now I have come to the end. He left home one morning, followed to the gate by the little girl and boy, we had moved to a cottage in the suburbs. Bring me a red ball, pleaded the little girl. And me too, cried the boy. All right, chickens, he responded, waving his hand to them. He was brought home at night, shot through the head. There are some Chinese, just as there are some Americans, who are opposed to all progress and who hate with a bitter hatred all who would enlighten or be enlightened. But that I have not the heart to dwell upon. I can only remember that when they brought my Chinese husband home, there were two red balls in his pocket. Such was Liu Kangyi, a man. Anonymous 
The Angel Island Immigration Station, 1910-1940, on the island that some say looks like a slumbering angel in the middle of San Francisco Bay, was but one racist humiliation created specifically for the Chinese by the Chinese exclusion laws. Chinese attempting to enter the United States were detained at the station and housed in one wooden building that was divided into men's and women's sections. All immigrants had to prove themselves to be related by blood to a current United States resident. All immigrants underwent long and sometimes repeated interrogations from United States immigration officials whose questions were detailed, if not clever, entrapment. How many steps lead to your front door? Many remember being asked and laugh. If the immigrant was indeed a paper son, a man who had bought a family history and a ticket to America, his paper father would have sold him the answers to all the questions immigration would ask, and he would have memorized them. Their stories, their sorrows, their fears, and their spirit, much of it informed by and evoking the fairy tale and the strategies of the heroic tradition are carved deep into the walls of the wooden building that still stands today. Marlon K. Holmes' translations of these Angel Island poems in Immigration Blues and his Lamentations of Stranded Sojourners form an important link in the study of Chinese-American literary history. These poems and rhymes represent the visions of the early Chinese immigrant in America in the late 19th and early 20th century. Holmes states in the introduction to Songs of Gold Mountain, the language used in the rhymes is colloquial Cantonese. It is folksy, somewhat vulgar, and at times erotic. Some of the pieces contain faultily written characters either unintentional mistakes by writers or typographical errors. The errors reveal the unsophisticated peasant background of some of the writers, who became very uninhibited behind the mask of anonymity. Marlon K. Hum is a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Songs of Gold Mountain, Immigration Blues the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 opened an infamous chapter in the United States immigration history, one that brought insurmountable hardship to the Chinese. The moment that their ship docked at the San Francisco Pier, the Chinese immigrants were herded into the notorious detention center known to all the Chinese as the Mok Ok, or Wooden Barracks, to be processed for immigration. Before 1910, detainees were sent to a wooden building alongside the Pacific Mail Steamship Company Pier that was known as the Tongsan Matao, the China Dock, now Pier 50 on the San Francisco waterfront. Because of rampant corruption and the facility's poor physical condition, it ceased to be used in 1910. 
Instead, the government put into operation the newly built Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco Bay to process immigrants and returnees from Asia. This station was sometimes called the Ellis Island of the West Coast. At Angel Island, the Chinese had to submit to a battery of physical examinations and harsh interrogations. Those who passed were ferried to San Francisco to begin their new life. Those who did not were deported back to China permanently. Detainees at the wooden barracks were not allowed to go beyond the compound or to meet any outside visitors. It was not uncommon to be detained in the wooden barracks for several weeks, even over a year, while awaiting processing. The facilities were minimal without any consideration for privacy. Suicides were not unknown. Many of the Chinese at the Angel Island wooden barracks wrote poems expressing their agony, frustration, anger, and despair. They would scribble the lines all over the walls of the barracks where they slept. In the 1930s, two detainees copied those scribbles and brought them to San Francisco. However, this genre of Chinese immigration poetry remained unknown to most people until recently. In 1940, a fire destroyed the administration building of the Angel Island Immigration Station, and the use of the facility was soon halted. Detainees were moved to another detention center in San Francisco. Barrack 37, the housing compound, survived the fire, but was forgotten for 30 years. Finally, in the early 1970s, when the building was targeted for demolition, the Chinese scribbles on the walls caught the attention of the Chinese in San Francisco. Community efforts from Chinatown saved Barrack 37, and it has since become a historical site, augmented by an exhibition on the island's Chinese immigration history. Over 135 wooden barracks poems are extant today. The Cantonese folk rhymes on immigration in the 1911 anthology represent the earliest collection of published poems dealing with the Chinese immigration experience. They are different from the poems on the wooden barracks walls. Not only do these rhymes protest the harsh treatment at the wooden barracks, they also show that Angel Island with its wooden barracks was not a euphoric Ellis Island for the Chinese immigrants. Instead, it was a contradiction of the principles of liberty that testified to injustice. The criticism, so pronounced in the rhymes, reveals that the Chinese immigrants did have an appreciation of the American principles of justice and democracy. They expected to be treated on that level, and they believed that they should be accorded such rights. This was, I believe, the first crude sign of their Americanization. One, as soon as it is announced the ship has reached America, I burst out cheering. I have found precious pearls. How can I bear the detention upon arrival? Doctors and immigration officials refusing to let me go. All the abuse. I can't describe it with a pen. I'm held captive in a wooden barrack like King Wen in Yoli.
no end to the misery and sadness in my heart. Two, the moment I hear we've entered the port, I am all ready. My belongings wrapped in a bundle. Who would have expected joy to become sorrow? Detained in a dark, crude, filthy room. What can I do? Cruel treatment, not one restful breath of air. Scarcity of food, severe restrictions, all unbearable. Here, even a proud man bows his head low. In search of a pinhead gain, I was idle in an impoverished village. I risked a perilous journey to come to the flowery flag nation. Immigration officers interrogated me, and just for a slight lapse of memory, I am deported and imprisoned in this barren mountain. A brave man cannot use his might here, and he can't take one step beyond the confines. At home I was in poverty, constantly worried about firewood and rice. I borrowed money to come to Gold Mountain. Immigration officers cross-examined me. No way could I get through. Deported to this island like a convicted criminal, here, mournful sighs fill the gloomy room. A nation weak, her people often humiliated, like animals, tortured and destroyed at others' whims. Wooden barracks, all specially built, it's clear they're detention cells. We Chinese enter this country and suffer all sorts of autocratic restrictions made at whim. What a disappointment. Cooped up inside an iron cage, we have an impotent ambassador who cannot handle matters. We knit our brows and cry for heaven. It gives no recourse for our suffering. The wooden cell is like a steel barrel, firmly shut, not even a breeze can filter through. Over a hundred cruel laws, hard to list them all. Ten thousand grievances, all from the tortures day and night. Worry and more worry, how can I sleep in peace or eat at ease? There isn't a king, but the hidden punishment is just as weighty. Tears soak my clothes. Frustration fills my bosom. Detention is called a waiting review. No letter or message can get through to me. My mind's bogged down with a hundred frustrations and anxieties. My mouth boxed at meager meals of rice gruel. Oh, what can I do? Just when can I go ashore? Imprisoned in a coop, unable to breathe, my countrymen are made into a herd of cattle. America, I have come and landed, and am stranded here, for more than a year, suffering thousands upon thousands of mistreatments. Is it in retribution for a past life that I deserve such defilement? It is outrageous. Being humiliated repeatedly by them. I pray my country will become strong and even the score, 
Send out troops like Japan's war against Russia. A weak nation can't speak up for herself. Chinese sojourners have come to a foreign country. Detained, put on trial, imprisoned in a hillside building. If deposition doesn't exactly match, the case is dead and in a bind. No chance for release. My fellow countrymen cry out injustice. The sole purpose is strict exclusion to deport us all back to Hong Kong. Pity my fellow villagers and their flood of tears. The mighty power rescinds her treaty. The weak race suffers oppression from the mighty. I am jailed unjustly across the bay, enduring the unendurable tyranny of immigration officials. Doors firmly shut. Guards and officers watching me closely like wolves. News and letters not permitted. Oh, it's hard to bear the hundred cruel regulations they devise at will. American laws more ferocious than tigers. Many are the people jailed inside wooden walls, detained, interrogated, tortured, like birds plunged into an open trap. What suffering! To whom can I complain of the tragedy? I shout to heaven, but there is no way out. Had I only known such difficulty in passing the Golden Gate, fed up with this treatment, I regret my journey here. So liberty is your national principle. Why do you practice autocracy? You don't uphold justice, you Americans. You detain me in prison, guard me closely. Your officials are wolves and tigers, all ruthless, all wanting to bite me. An innocent man implicated such an injustice. When can I get out of this prison and free my mind? Fellow countrymen, four hundred million strong, many are great with exceptional talents. We want to come to the flowery flag nation, but are barred. The golden gate firmly locked, without even a crack to crawl through. This moment, truly deplorable, is the imprisonment. Our hearts ache in pain and shame. Though talented, how can we put on wings and fly past the barbarians? I roam America undocumented. White men blackmail me with many demands. I say one thing and they another. I want to complain of injustice, but my tongue stutters. At a loss for words, I rack my brain for a solution to no avail. Thrown into a prison cage, I cannot fly away. Don't you think this is cruel? Don't you think this is cruel? I am a man of heroic deeds. I am a man with pride and dignity. My bosom encompasses the height of heaven and the brilliance of earth. Everywhere they know me as a truly noble man, in search of wealth. Greed led me on the road to Golden Mountain. Denied landing upon reaching the shore, I am filled with rage. 
With no means to pass the border, what can a person do? Stay at home and lose opportunities? A hundred considerations lead me to sojourn in Mexico. Political parties are like wolves and tigers eliminating each other. Hatred and prejudice against foreigners take away our property and many lives. Unable to stay on, I sneak across the border to the American side, but bump into an immigration officer who sternly throws the book at me and orders my expulsion back to China. A transient living beneath a stranger's fence. Cruelties increase day by day. Though innocent, I am arrested and thrown in jail. Pathetic, the lonely bachelors stranded in a foreign land. Oh, let's all go home. Spare ourselves of this mighty tyrant. The outside world may be entertaining at times, but life at home is just as bustling.